0: Welcome to Shelf Life from Bristol Libraries. In this episode, we're trying something new. Recently, Bristol Libraries have started holding online events and talks from authors across the UK, as well as people involved in projects and research here in Bristol. We're getting some great content from these talks that we're keen to share with you here on the podcast. So we'll be alternating the usual, more chatty, made for podcast episodes with these, sometimes slightly longer, event episodes. And to kick this off, We're starting on the theme of libraries. In this episode, Catherine introduces Richard Ovenden, a librarian, historian, and author, who talks about and reads from his latest book, Burning the Books, a history of knowledge under attack, before answering some questions that move the conversation more to the present and possible future of the topic. To find out about the upcoming online events themselves, please follow Bristol Libraries on Eventbrite. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this episode of Shelf Life.
1: We are joined this evening by Richard Ovenden, who is the director of the world-famous Bodleian Library and the author of Burning Books, which is this wonderful new book, which is just recently published last month. So Richard is the 25th Bodley's Librarian since the post was set up in 1599, Throughout his career, he's worked in a number of important archives and libraries, including the House of Lords Library, the National Library of Scotland as a curator of rare books, and at the University of Edinburgh, where he was the Director of Collections. He joins us this evening to talk about his new book, Burning the Books, published just last month, Burning the Books, A History of Knowledge Under Attack. It takes us on a 3,000-year journey from what really happened to the Great Library of Alexandria to John Murray's burning... Byron's memoirs to save his literary reputation and so much more and everything in between. Richard thank you so much for joining us this evening.
2: Well thank you for having me it's a really great pleasure to to be here.
1: So you're going to share a reading from the book but just to start us off I was wondering can you please tell us a little bit give us a brief overview of the book and what it's about.
2: So the book is although the title of the book is called Burning the Books, A History of Knowledge Under Attack, and it is. It goes through a number of case studies about libraries and archives which have been deliberately destroyed through history, but it's really actually about the preservation of knowledge and about the vital role that libraries and archives play in keeping knowledge for society and what that means for society, what that means for individuals, for communities, for us all, and how important it is. And really the kind of motivation for writing it was generally as a professional librarian being concerned that libraries don't get recognised for the vital work that they do And how can we raise the profile of libraries? And I thought, well, actually, perhaps looking at what happens when you lose a library might be a good way of doing that. But the actual trigger for it was actually about archives. And in particular, in 2010, when the kind of hostile environment was created with the government's immigration policy to to look at pursuing individuals and forcing them to prove their right to remain in the UK. At the same time, the Home Office that had created the hostile environment destroyed the landing records of the Windrush generation going back to the 1950s and 60s, the very evidence that could those citizens being challenged could have used to prove their their right to, to remain in the UK. So I thought that was a great example of how knowledge is absolutely vital for both for citizens themselves, for individuals, but actually for, for a whole society. And so that actually prompted me to, to get on and write this book. And two years later, it's, it's or two and a bit years later, it's finally out, trying to sort of, you know, change the, the conversation about what libraries and archives do for us all.
1: For those who have not yet read the book or they haven't had a chance to pick up a copy just yet, I was hoping you might share a short extract cool. with us now.
2: Okay, let's do that. This is from the introduction where I talk about my own sort of history with libraries and really about the core motivation for writing the book, so here we go. I'm lucky enough to work in one of the world's greatest libraries. Formerly founded in 1598 and first open to readers in 1602, the Bodleian in Oxford has enjoyed a continuous existence ever since. Working in an institution like this, I'm constantly aware of the achievements of past librarians. The Bodleian today has well over 13 million printed volumes in its collection, plus miles and miles of manuscripts and archives. And it's built up a broad collection, including millions of maps, music scores, photographs, ephemera, and a myriad other things. This includes petabytes worth of digital information, such as journals, data sets, images, texts, and emails. The collections are housed in 40 buildings, dating from the 15th to the 21st century, which have a fascinating history in themselves. My own education, up to the age of 18, was transformed by being able to use my hometown, Deal's public library. In that building, I discovered the joys of reading. At first, this was escape through science fiction, especially Isaac Asimov, Brian Aldiss, and Ursula K. Le Guin, and then I read Thomas Hardy and D.H. Lawrence, but also authors from beyond Britain, Hermann Hesse, Gogol, Colette, and many more. I found I could borrow vinyl records and discovered there was more to classical music than Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. There was Beethoven, Vaughan Williams, Mozart, and I could read the serious newspapers and the Times Literary Supplement. All for free, crucially important, as my family were not wealthy and there was little money to buy books. The library was and is run by local government, free for users for the majority of its services and funded from local taxation under legal provisions that were first set out by the Public Libraries Act of 1850. There was political opposition to the idea at the time. As the bill worked its way through Parliament, the Conservative MP Colonel Sibthorpe was sceptical of the importance of reading to the working classes on the grounds that he himself did not like reading at all and hated it while at Oxford. The system of public libraries that the Act inaugurated replaced a patchwork of endowed libraries, parish libraries, collections in coffee houses, fishermen's reading rooms, as well as subscription libraries and book clubs, which were products of the age of improvement and the concept of useful knowledge. This term grew out of the ferment of ideas in the 18th century. The American Philosophical Society was started by a group of prominent individuals, including Benjamin Franklin, in 1767 for promoting useful knowledge. In 1799, the Royal Institution was founded for diffusing the knowledge and facilitating the general introduction of useful mechanical inventions and improvements. Both organisations had libraries to support their work. Libraries were a key part of a wider movement to broaden education for the benefit of the individual, but also for society as a whole. A century more later, Sylvia Pankhurst, the inspirational champion of women's rights, wrote to the director of the British Museum requesting admission to the reading room of the library. As I desire to consult various government publications and other works of which I cannot obtain access in any other way. At the foot of her letter of application, she cited the object of study, to obtain information on the employment of women. The Public Libraries Act made it possible for local authorities to institute public libraries and to pay for them through rates, as local taxation was then called. But this system was entirely voluntary. It was not until 1964 that the Public Libraries and Museums Act made it a duty for local authorities to provide libraries, and the system retains a strong place in the general consciousness today as a cherished service, part of the National Infrastructure for Public Education. Libraries and archives share the responsibility of preserving knowledge for society. This book has been written not just to highlight the destruction of those institutions in the past, but also to acknowledge and celebrate the ways librarians and archivists have fought back. It is through their work that knowledge is passed down from one generation to the next, preserved so that people and society can develop and seek inspiration from that knowledge. In a famous letter of 1813, Thomas Jefferson compared the spread of knowledge to the way one candle is lit from another. He who receives an idea from me, wrote Jefferson, receives instruction himself without lessening mine, and he who lights his taper at mine receives light without darkening me. Libraries and archives are institutions that fulfil the promise of Jefferson's taper, an essential point of reference for ideas, facts, and truth. The history of how they have faced the challenges of securing the flame of knowledge and making it possible to enlighten others is complex the individual stories in this book are instructive of the many ways knowledge has been attacked throughout history jefferson's taper remains alight today thanks to the extraordinary efforts of the preservers of knowledge collectors scholars writers but especially librarians and archivists who are the other half of this story there you go a taster
1: Thank you so much for sharing that extract with us. It was really wonderful to hear about your experiences going into your local library as a child and the impact that that had on you and what you gained from being able to read so widely and read for free, just a huge, hugely diverse number of books. Yeah, it's just really wonderful to hear that. And so you you touched on this a little bit um, just in your introduction, but I wanted to ask a little bit about what the driving force was for you in writing this book now. so How, how long um, and what was, the process, what was the writing process like? How long have you, been, have you been thinking about this book for a little while and it's just sort of yeah. come to fruition? Well, um,
2: the issue, the, the kind of Windrush issue, which was the kind of trigger, Came home to me in April 2018. So I wrote. I, I read an article in the Guardian, which described what had happened, kind of revealed the destruction of the landing cards, and I was so kind of struck by this that I literally that morning wrote an op-ed article, which got published the following Thursday. So this is a Saturday morning in the Financial Times. So that article was published right at the end of April 2018. And the next day, a publisher emailed me to say, This would be a really interesting book. Because I kind of set what had happened with the Windrush Landing records in the context of the destruction of libraries and looked to the Holocaust, looked to the destruction of the National Library of Bosnia in 1992 and other kind of historical events and said, This is one example among many of how the preservation of knowledge is is of vital importance so that that article prompted the contact from a publisher and then I just kind of got going really so and of course I'm a I'm a working librarian I'm not an academic I don't get sabbatical leave or anything like that so it's been every weekend getting up early in the morning and my wife and family have had to put up with me not Doing as much um, in the household, or spending our holidays instead of sort of why we would go on holiday, but I would be I would go with a stack of books on my laptop and and beaver away at it. So, and I've been fortunate having I worked with a couple of sort of research assistant who are assistants who are graduate students at, at Oxford, one in classics and one in history who've kind of helped me do some of the kind of heavy lifting of the research. And really, without them, I wouldn't have been able to do it and keep my job going at the same time. So that's, that, that's really been the process. And and I kind of finished most of the research about a year ago, and then I because I had a deadline with my publisher to submit the, the manuscript. And then it's a process of kind of you know edit you know, with my editor, multiple rewrites of all the chapters, and kind of shaping it into the form that. And then the final kind of proofreading and copy editing all during lockdown actually over the Easter holidays
1: Okay, so um, was it always scheduled yeah. to come out in September, or were you affected by? It
2: was actually, funnily enough, it was always scheduled to come out in September, and there were many moments where I thought, "This isn't going to happen, is it?" You know, um, but it did. So um, I mean, we, managed to, we managed
1: it, yeah. to, Yeah, I mean, yeah. to be honest, I can't remember how many books it was. I think it was, I think it was about six hundred was the number of books that were published in September. So I think yeah. the publishing industry sort of shut down in terms of producing the books, printing Absolutely. the books. For a good couple of months Um, and that obviously has had a massive impact on on when books are coming out so yeah it must be quite it must be a very strange time to to have a book come out
2: yes yeah yeah there were 590 other books published on the 3rd of september along with along with mine so
1: yeah wow what a huge number so relating to kind of the research and the research process so you mentioned that you had um support from other people that were also researching topics it is a really wide-ranging book and it covers such a huge period and um the subject is, is so broad how did you approach it it's kind of almost an act of curation yeah. in itself trying to put together yes.
2: thing, I, I think there was a little, so i did you know, I like a good librarian, I did a literature search. So I started by reading some books. There have been other books written about the destruction of libraries, much less about the destruction of archives, actually. And I followed the footnotes. And, you know, some of it I've written about myself in the past. So I do kind of publish on, particularly on the history of libraries in the Renaissance. So I, I you know, I'd written and published quite a lot about the Reformation, and the destruction of, of of libraries, and the role of antiquaries, and the formation of the libraries like the Bodleian in the in the late sixteenth, early seventeenth century, as a kind of reaction to the destruction of of knowledge during the Reformation. And then, of course, um, I'm quite active in the digital preservation world i've been the chairman of the digital preservation coalition and i'm currently its president so the final parts of the book really address the kind of current moment with knowledge you know moving heavily into digital formats and the role that big tech companies what my colleague at oxford timothy gartnash calls the private superpowers and the risks to, to knowledge and its preservation that they pose, you know, slightly differently to shelling the National Library of Bosnia, but no less important for the future of, of us all. And the, our, our present moment in time is one in which, you know, we're all engaging in this digital world, just as we're doing now on Zoom. But the way that knowledge is, is being transferred, it poses kind of great, great threats for society, I think.
1: It's been a very kind of eventful and, and a steep learning curve, I think, in terms of yeah. uh, the world sort of transitioning to doing things online yeah. Um, yeah. in many different respects and very quickly over the past few months. So it is it's yeah, a time of really rapid change, which yes, obviously has huge implications for libraries and archives and the way that we manage information.
2: But just going back to your earlier question, there were some aspects of the book which were kind of new to me that I didn't know in great detail, but I found sort of incredibly interesting. I think the most the most kind of powerful for me is the chapter on the Holocaust, which, of course, one sort of generally knew that, you know, there was horrific destruction of knowledge in the Holocaust as the Nazis tried to kind of, you know, have a cultural genocide that went alongside the human genocide. But there was the episode that I focus on in the book is about the city of Vilnius in Lithuania, which at the time was called Vilna, and a group of individuals who were Jews who were involved in an organization called YIVO. And YIVO um, is a kind of research institute for the study of Jew, you know, the life and culture of ordinary Jews in Eastern Europe, in Yiddish culture and the Yiddish language in particular. And there was this group of individuals who were, who were kind of librarians and archivists before the Holocaust, but then as the Nazis took over Vilnius, they were brought into the ghetto along with, you know, hundreds of thousands of other Jews, but they were selected to work with the Nazis to decide which books should be preserved from the Jewish libraries and archives including their own and get sent back to Alfred Rosenberg's horrific sort of institute for the study of Jews in Frankfurt and which books should go off to the paper mills to be destroyed but what they did which was incredibly moving and inspiring was to, to to hide documents in their own clothes and smuggle them back into the ghetto and they did this not just sort of hiding them in their clothing, but they they persuaded the Nazis that they needed some furniture in the ghetto and they would they would sort of hide documents in the furniture, kind of in the chair legs and things like this. Absolutely amazing, risking their own lives. If they'd been found, they would have been kind of murdered on the spot. And they actually smuggled hundreds of thousands of pages back into the ghetto, hid them, dug great sort of underground chambers, and, and hid these documents, which were then uncovered, but a few of them escaped when the, the ghetto was liquidated. Only a handful, you know, absolutely tragic. You know, hundreds of thousands of people were murdered, but a handful of them survived and managed to kind of dig the stuff up after the Nazis were, were pushed out, uh, only to find a, a, a year or two later that the communists who of course had taken over uh, the country, also decided that all these documents were kind of anti-communist and sent them off to the, the paper mills for destruction again. And it was a Lithuanian librarian called Antonas Ulpis, who was one of the first people to set up the National Library of Lithuania, rescued them from the paper mills, and he hid them a second time in um, a reused church it was being used for the National Library of Lithuania and, and kind of hiding them even in the organ pipes of this church. And they were only discovered in 1989. He kept it a secret for all those years that there are all these hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper. And they were then kind of revealed. And the institution called YIVO, which founded in the 1920s in Vilnius, had actually refounded itself in New York Um, in 1939 and they've been digitizing all of these documents um, with the National Library of Lithuania ever since and they're they're kind of available now and I've been to Yivo's um, archive in New York and seen all these documents these incredible things that were saved by these incredibly brave people um, because many of them were murdered but some of them survived and, and protected all of this incredible material. So that was, that was a new thing for me. And like I say, I found it, I found it both moving and very inspiring.
1: So why, why is it that libraries are so often targets during times of conflict?
2: They preserve both knowledge, you know, and knowledge is dangerous. Knowledge is powerful. And so it can, that knowledge, those bodies of knowledge that are built up by librarians and through the act of curation and selection, can either be seen as a threat a kind of a direct threat you know to another state or to another community or they can be part of a kind of religious warfare so you know in the Re- the reformation is obviously a great example of that where catholic knowledge if i can kind of simplify the argument was targeted during the reformation for destruction we've lost the vast majority of books and documents that came from the libraries of medieval england and indeed across across parts of many other parts of europe as well and these were kind of destroyed and torn up and reused and sold for soap makers to wrap soap in and pie makers to line pie dishes and you know there's a great phrase at the time you know um, at the time, in, this is the 1550s, books were dog cheap and whole libraries could be had for an inconsiderable nothing. They, they were kind of deliberately targeted as this this part of this kind of dismantling of the kind of Catholic religion. Or they can be seen as more in the kind of cultural sense, so not sort of specifically religious, but more broadly in a cultural sense. So, you know, take the former Yugoslavia and take Bosnia in the 1990s. I mean, this is not very long ago. You know, this is, you know, my brother was in the Royal Navy and served as part of the UN peacekeeping force in that conflict. So this is, you know, this is very, very recently. And the Serbs deliberately targeted the National Library of Bosnia Um, with incendiary devices in August 1992. You know, they didn't shell other buildings. It wasn't caught in the crossfire. It was deliberately targeted. And then the firefighters and librarians who tried to save the contents of the book were targeted by snipers. This is an ethnic conflict. This is not about religion, although partly there's a layer of religion in there because Bosnia represented the kind of successful... Broadly speaking, the successful coexistence of Muslims, Orthodox Christians and Jews. And the Serbs did not like that. That was against their kind of view of the world, as it were. What they were trying to do and what they, to some extent, successfully did, which was targeting provincial land registries, so archives which held evidence that Muslims had owned property in bosnia and so the destruction of those records meant that you know they wanted to eradicate the idea even just the idea the kind of knowledge in title deeds that muslims had owned land there and so this is you know that's kind of at the heart of what you know libraries and archives do is they hold evidence that some individuals or communities or even states regard as a challenge, a threat. And so it's that idea of evidence, that idea of knowledge having power that threatens people, and their reaction against it is to kind of destroy it, to try and eradicate it. And sometimes it's part and parcel, like the Holocaust, like the former Yugoslavia. It's a kind of cultural genocide that goes alongside a human genocide. And and at other times those destructions are, you know, they can be just kind of more political. So the British destruction of the Library of Congress in 1814, you know, they're trying to stop the government of the newly independent United States from functioning. So destroying their library, the Library of Congress, of the, it would be like trying to destroy the Library of the House of Commons or the House of Lords where I once worked, you know, to stop the state from being able to function by cutting off its knowledge base so you know there are there are there are kind of flavors of that idea that knowledge is powerful knowledge is control over the archive is a political power as Derrida said
1: I think it really comes through in the book that um just the importance of archives so I think we talk maybe a little bit more generally about libraries and how important libraries are and how much we value libraries and then possibly not so much focus on archives maybe because of the kind of documents that that they deal with which is the sort of more day-to-day the daily records the more mundane sort of aspects but are just so fundamentally important so it so yes that definitely I think I, I certainly had a newfound appreciation I think for that aspect after reading yeah.
2: it and and there can also be a sort of very kind of personal thing so a couple of the chapters in my book are about sort of the the writer's archives and the destruction of byron's memoirs so this is about sort of a reputation wanting to sort of protect his reputation by the destruction of his you know what at the time was felt to be very saucy memoirs or it can be I posit the case of Ted Hughes's destruction of the last of Sylvia Plath's journals, which he said was him trying to protect their children from what he regarded as being very kind of painful entries in her own journal. Was he trying to protect his reputation? You know, we don't know because the evidence isn't there. And again, the same was true of Philip Larkin, of course, a famous librarian, but one of the great poets of the, the last century. And you know, we have part of his archive in the Bodleian. And but again, famously he got his his assistance to destroy his his diaries at his death. But you can kind of reconstruct them by looking at his correspondence, which does survive. And libraries, you know, at Harlan in the Bodleian have preserved them for the most part. And you can kind of almost reconstruct his thoughts on a daily basis because he wrote so many letters, particularly to Monica Jones, his lover. Multiple page letters almost every day.
1: That's so interesting. There were um, so many details of those different, very, you know, iconic literary figures that you think you know quite well. But actually, um, yeah, there was all sorts of details that I wasn't aware of. So those discussions around... You know, preservation of your identity after your death and censorship and yep. who has the right to do what I actually thought it was quite interesting to read about the different clauses that these figures can write into their wills about saying say for example if they were to leave their body of work or unpublished letters or something like that to a library the library can then hold on to them to release at a future date Yep, it's all very interesting yeah
2: yes yeah we've got many boxes which are tied up we actually tie them up with pink tape with a sign saying not to be opened until whenever it is 2035 or whenever to go along with the donors wishes it
1: must be so interesting to be the person who then opens up those archives and opens up that those documents absolutely yeah absolutely, fascinating job Well, I will have a quick look at the chat and just see what questions we've got coming through. There's a good one here about the future of libraries and archives. Mm. So um, this is a question from Karen. Um, She's asking, given the ability for most of us to download and store digital material and demands for public library service space, what do you think is the future of archives? Like journalism and photography, are we all archivists now?
2: Well that's a very interesting question where we are I think that there is a sense that you know the ind- individual can curate their own archive and I think that's but I think that's always been the case and you know many of you will have documents or family photographs in in a box you know my mum has got one a big cardboard box full of photographs that we've been sort of slowly trying to sort of scan and to put into kind of archival sleeves and things and to get her to kind of you know annotate them so you know who who the who these people are you know we've always done that and of course now we've got the ability to do so much more of that not just our own personal material online your digital photos but also potentially you know stuff that you see online yourself you might want to kind of download it and keep it as a kind of collection but that poses another challenge which is how are you going to preserve that because you know Digital information is much, much harder to pass on from one generation to the next. And we haven't really faced that challenge very much, but we're beginning to. So I'll give you one example, which is Barbara Castle, the Labour MP, later member of the House of Lords, former cabinet minister. She left the Bodley in her archive, and that's 500 boxes of paper. So, you know, correspondence, diaries, all of that kind of stuff, and two PCs. But she didn't leave us the passwords. Sorry. So we had to hack it. You know, fortunately, I've got software engineers in my staff, and they had to hack the PCs to get access to them. So that was about a dozen, you know, 10 or 15 years ago now. What's happening now is that people are sadly dying, but they have information that they have hotmail accounts or google mail or they might have facebook they might have content what we might call their personal archive spread on all sorts of cloud services behind multiple different passwords and if they don't leave that information or direction for their descendants the images that might be in their facebook account or they might be in private share, you know, third-party services like Dropbox, you might not even know it exists. Or if you do, you might not be able to get access to it if you don't have the passwords. And uh, there's certainly been a number of accounts of people finding it actually quite difficult to get access to their loved one's email or, or social media accounts. So it's becoming much more complex and difficult. I spend my time now talking to lawyers as much as i do my fellow library staff because all of these issues about archiving particularly in the digital world are so much shrouded in in you know legal aspects that that that's becoming one of the kind of one of the key issues with the digital archive and digital library of the future
1: thank you very much for that question um, good, good question keep them coming yeah they're no, really interesting um so i've got quite a quite a thorny question but it's a good one so this one's from v would like to know in the world of fake news how do you know what to preserve
2: actually that, that that's a very good question in a funny way i think it's um important to preserve the fake news so it's important to preserve the things which are wrong provided you know that they're wrong
0: mm-hmm.
2: and you know librarians and archivists are good at describing things when I started off it was called cataloging, and is now called metadata. So being able to understand where information came from comes from its provenance. Being able to detect the fake from the the, the real. So knowing sources of information, knowing how it's passed down the information channels through information flows but being able to then preserve it and describe it and a kind of classic one is um, one I, I, I talk about in the book which is Donald Trump's assertion that his inauguration Ceremony was attended by more people than Barack Obama's. And there are multiple sources of information that prove that this was not correct. But of course, his press secretary at the time, Kellyanne Conway, used this to say that there were alternative facts. And so actually preserving those statements, I think is really important for the future, for future history, but also for us now, so that we we know you know, what people are saying, and we can attribute them to those uh, statements. And we can hold them to account uh, for the statements that they make. And so I, I think it, it, is a, it is a tricky thing, and that's why we need librarians and archivists who understand the world of information, they understand about provenance, they understand the importance of preserving it.
1: It's still, it's a, it would be a huge challenge. It sounds like a vast task.
2: Yeah but I think the other thing that librarians and archivists do is that they help explain this to the public so through information skills training through just sometimes through through one one to one help they they can help the user that our, our communities navigate and I think we should be given more funding to do more of this it should be you know school libraries it should be compulsory part of the education of young people to to teach them this and it should be librarians and archivists are doing it
1: mm.
2: in my humble opinion and um, so
1: following on from this actually we've got another good question to do with digitization and digitized, ar- digitized archives. So Maureen would like to know how will digitized archives be protected from being destroyed? So whereas previously, you know, we've been talking yeah. about the burning of books, yeah, about digital attacks, how do you protect yeah. these yeah. kind of
2: archives? Well, very, very good question. With increasing difficulty, and it's all about, you know, sort of giving institutions the tools to do it. So I'm currently the president of the Digital Preservation Coalition, and the job of the coalition, which is libraries, archives, museums, but also bodies like the World Bank and the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority, bodies that have a real stake in keeping information alive. What we do is develop approaches, technologies, techniques, we share information, we train staff in order to to deal with this problem. And I think we kind of more or less know how to do it. I mean the the technology industry changes all the time. So called innovation and so we have got a lot to, you know, we're constantly running to catch up with the fast moving world of digital technology, but we, we, we can do it. You know, we, we, we have the technology, as they say, um, you know, we've developed techniques, approaches, policies, procedures, legal frameworks, organizations. What we often lack is the funding to do it. And I think that is the big issue when we all try to preserve and keep safe the paper records of the past 2000 plus years and papyrus and parchment and all, and all of those other formats in analog form. The digital is an added cost and it's harder to do mm-hmm. and it is changing all the time. And in my book, I I make the suggestion that one of the things that we could do to solve this problem is to levy a what I call a memory tax on the big tech companies who we know pay less tax than they should do and give that to libraries and archives in order to preserve the digital.
1: That's a really interesting concept, I think, of a memory tax. So we've had lots of different questions come through. So thank you very much, everyone, for your questions. They're all really interesting. Just just one here that's about Wikipedia. So mm. This question is from Mark, and, and he'd like to know a little bit about the role of, sort of public or open source repositories, such as Wikipedia, are they useful, or should they be considered with immense, that immense skepticism? How useful are they as records in the future?
2: That's a very interesting question itself. Uh, I'm I'm generally speaking a fan of open source um, tools like uh, particularly wikipedia but they're only as good as the informa- as the effort that society puts into them so there uh, and so libraries and archives including the bodleian for many years we actually employed a wikimedian in residence to help Uh, improve the entries in wikipedia and he was actually i think he still is a resident of bristol actually so um he's a great colleague who trained a lot of staff trained a lot of people in the university trained colleagues in the libraries but also in the museums and actually worked we had kind of editor thons for wikipedia where we added lots of entries for women in science for example we have the archive of Ada Lovelace, the great pioneer of computer science. So we used her, the, her day, Ada Lovelace Day, as a, an excuse for having lots of people in Oxford write Wikipedia entries for women in science to improve it. But we also found ourselves correcting lots of entries in Wikipedia that were about collections in Oxford. So, we use that opportunity to kind of improve the content of Wikipedia. But it is a problem because it being so open, in that it gets changed and so in my book i talk about the deliberate attempts to put false information or to eradicate information in wikipedia and the efforts that wikipedia as an organization goes through so one example is mps expenses so unfortunately there are mps who are caught out during the expenses scandal who have had their office staff remove entries to the fact that they were you know charged and fined or whatever because of Expenses. So they, they try to ir- remove those references from their Wikipedia entries and they get their office staff in Westminster to do it. What Wikipedia does now is have a system of tracking those erasures and getting people to re enter the erased information where it's true, where it's verifiable. And it also happens in other, other aspects. So, you know, in Turkish Wikipedia, for example, your references to the Armenian genocide are relative, you know, frequently eradicated and they have to get put back.
1: That's so interesting about there being a specific role for, um, for sort of keeping an eye on, on other Wikipedia entries. That's, yeah, really interesting to hear. I'm keeping an eye on the time and I know that we're running out, but if we've got time to think for just one or two more questions. Sure. Um, so one more from Tim, um, who's asking have we already digitized all of the knowledge that's worth having and will we ever lose anything once it's been digitized? <laughs> what
2: do you think? Ooh, I think we're a long way from digitizing everything that's worth having, a long, long way. I know from my own organization, so we did a big partnership with Google to digitize lots of public domain works, mostly 19th century printed books. We digitized 130 million pages with them. It's all freely available from our online catalog. You download whole books for free. That was about three percent of our collection, so you know, we calculated that it cost Google about seventeen million pounds to do, and it took them five years and it's three percent of our collection. so there's a long, long way to go. Will we lose anything by digitizing? I think we will if we throw away the analog originals. Mm. We lose so much that cannot be replicated in digital form with the physical book. The book is a very successful technology, and it survived thousands of years, and each copy of a book is different from another. So I'm I'm a great believer in that. There's no such thing as a duplicate, and particularly when you go back through time. And it's proven that our community, well, in in preserving knowledge, has this idea of lots of copies keeps that stuff safe. So the fact that there were copies of books in of published books, obviously, in, in one library helps the fact that if. That library suffers a calamity either deliberately or accidentally there you know there will be other copies of the same book in other libraries so that that sense of replicating knowledge as a, a technique for preservation is a good one.
1: I think people keep talking about um, new technology and how it's a threat to books and the death of the book or the and it's just not true. I don't think it's, you know, it's,
2: it's greatly exaggerated. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see it in the publishing industry as well. I mean, you know, the sales of physical books continue to hold up extremely well. In mm-hmm. fact, they're, they're growing again,
1: especially this year. Actually, it's sort of a response for many people have been with a lot of uncertainty and a lot of change. A lot of people have turned to books and to reading, which is yes. a wonderful thing to see.
2: Particularly when we're staring at Zoom all day, and some of us in our in our working lives, um, you know, it's it's so nice to retreat to the
1: absolutely, yeah, Zoom. no, having having a screen break and having you know a print book to go to. Um, yep. Yes, definitely, definitely appreciate it. So, just one last question to end on because I'm I'm aware that we're really almost out of time, but it's about the future of libraries. Think so this is a question from James. So, thank you for your question. He's saying, "What do you think are the main risks facing libraries and archives?" Uh, especially public ones in the coming years decades and centuries
0: and
1: how do you think they can remain resilient and relevant in the future
2: we need an we need another another hour to discuss that or more Uh, I mean I think it some of it comes down to to funding I keep going on about it but I think it's absolutely true you know we've seen funding for public libraries in particular but Libraries in all sectors have been hammered over the last you know, couple of decades, really. And it's from both flavours of government that we've had over the last 20 years. But I think it's also up to citizens to, there's a kind of use it or lose it aspect. So I think we need our citizens, we need library users to stand up for libraries, in whatever form they're, they're in. And I think there have been great examples of that campaigning, you know, the Defend the Ten in Lambeth or, you know, the Essex campaign to save libraries that's going on at the moment. And we need our own profession uh, as we do, but to, you know, redouble our efforts to raise awareness of the value that libraries bring to communities. And there've been um, some great books. I'd like to shout out for two of them actually written written both by Americans because they're facing the same issues as we are. Susan Orlean's The Library Book, which is about the LA Public Library. It's a fantastic read. She's a New Yorker writer and is absolutely brilliant. And Eric Kleinenberg's Palaces for the People. He's a sociologist at NYU. And he r- describes libraries as s- essential social infrastructure. So this idea that libraries are, you know, as important as you know, roads and sewers and, you know, things that we all take for granted as infrastructure for a healthy society. And I think he's absolutely right. So I commend those those books to you. But we, we need to be shouting about this more and raising the debate challenging our political leaders challenging those who who fund libraries and archives to really invest properly because society will benefit as a whole if we do and we need our library users those of you who are um, joining this this call tonight to you know get out there and champion your libraries champion bristol libraries Right, email tonight your local councillor to say, what are you doing to support Bristol libraries? So uh, I think that's, a, that's an absolutely key, key thing that needs to be done. But I think, I think you know, libraries have pr- proven themselves in the pandemic. They've proven themselves during the years of, of austerity. Despite the challenges that they face, they, they continue to be absolutely vital institutions. Well,
1: that is a really wonderful, positive note to end on. So I'm afraid that the time has absolutely flown by. And that is all all the time we have this evening, unfortunately. So apologies if we haven't managed to get to your question. I know there were a few that I missed. So a huge thank you, Richard, for joining us this evening. It has been wonderful to talk to you.
2: Well, thank you for having me. Thank you, all of you, for giving up some of your time to to listen. And I was only sorry that I wasn't able to come to Bristol and talk to you all in person. But I look forward to doing that again at some point in that future. would
1: be wonderful yes but at some point in the future it'd be absolutely wonderful to invite you to bristol so just a very quick thank you also to the reading agency and to the publishers john murray for helping us to organize and set up this event so again just a really huge thank you richard and thank you to everyone for joining us today and hopefully we'll see you soon
0: thank Bye. you stay safe
1: <laughs> stay safe and well
0: that's it for this episode of shelf life we hope you enjoyed it To find out about the upcoming online events themselves, please follow Bristol Libraries on Eventbrite. Next time on Shelf Life, we'll be back with one of the usual, more chatty, made-for-podcast episodes. The next one features Jill Parsons from Emela, who talks about Book Jam, her creative project with children at St Paul's Library. She's a very inspiring guest, and the conversation goes on to collaborating with young people and finding creative ways to help them engage with reading and with mental health and so on. So do come back soon for that. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate, and review Shelf Life wherever you listen, and get in touch via the Bristol Library's social media accounts, and with the hashtag #ShelfLifeBristol. Bristol. Huge thanks to Luke, a volunteer who edits and transcribes the episodes, Dan for the theme tune, and Will, a library assistant at Avonmouth who polishes off the sound. They all make Shelf Life possible with their amazing work. And thank you for listening. Bye for now.